Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. So this week, we're going to dive into our series, What If Jesus Was Serious? We've been in this one for uh, since the beginning of August, actually, where we've been looking at the teaching of Jesus, the parts of his teaching that are probably the most challenging, the parts of his teaching that the most number of people have said, this is really difficult to take Jesus seriously. I don't even really know how to do this. And in other words, what they're really saying is, I don't know how to do this in my own power. <laughs> I don't know how to pull this off. But Jesus was not inviting us to come and follow him in our own power. He was inviting us to come and follow him in his and this is a really important distinction. They may sound like preacher speak to you, but it actually is a profoundly different transition or uh, shift that we have to make in terms of how we follow him. And Jesus, when he began to preach this way, probably one of the most condensed places where he taught challenging things where people both in his day all the way to ours scratched their head and said, is he serious? Was probably in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we started all the way at the beginning of 5, and we're doing verse by verse going through what is called the Beatitudes, or these entrances into the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God has come near. It is at hand. And in other words, God has made available his kingdom, his um, community, his family is now available that you can become a child of God. You can become someone who has an intimate, personal love relationship with the God of the universe. This was mind-blowing for first century people. And I think even for 21st century people, if we begin to really think about what is being offered to us. And Jesus began to unpack at the beginning of the message, who's invited? Like who, first of all, is included in this kingdom that's being invited into the kingdom? And what we learn right away is that Jesus invites and he includes people that nobody else had ever included or invited into the kingdom of God. They had always believed, well, only the powerful, the rich, the influential, the people that seem to have it all together, those are the blessed people. Those are the people that God really is for. And Jesus started with a completely opposite group of people. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt, people at least they're willing to admit, I don't have it all together, and I need God. He says, I've come to say that blessed are those who mourn, who've been heartbroken by life, that have been devastated by life and are at least willing to come and maybe the mourning or the brokenness is over your own sin or over your own brokenness before God. And he says, the kingdom of heaven will comfort you. And then the last message that I shared with you was, blessed are those who are meek or those who are humble, who are willing to humble themselves and realize that this is the only posture that makes sense before a holy God and that God is calling us into a relationship where humility is the gateway and the, the, the pathway to freedom to really experiencing the power of God manifested in our lives. And then this week, we're gonna turn our attention to verse six in Matthew five, where he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, let's say it together, for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
for they will be filled. I'll tell you a quick story. When our girls were little, this was a long time ago. Um, it doesn't feel that long when you're a parent, but it was a while back. When they were little and they would be back in their bedroom playing every once in a while, not all the time, I mean, but every once in a while, we'd hear a scream come out of the back uh, bedroom. Uh, it says, that's not fair. Okay, how many of you, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, would say, yeah, I love those sweet little things, but they uh, sometimes scream that too. You ever, ever had your kids, grandkids? Okay, all right, we're not the only ones. All right, absolutely. You know what's so funny about that? And so Leslie or I would go back and check it. I mean, let's be honest, it's mainly her. But anyway, she would go back and check what's going on. And uh, about half the time, it was that phrase meant, I'm not getting what I want, all right? But What's funny is that we didn't have to teach our girls about justice. We didn't have to teach our girls about right and wrongness when it was being done to them. We didn't have to tell them, you need to proclaim it and loud, girl, whenever it's happening to you. They just naturally, intuitively, instinctively knew to do this. Isn't that interesting? And this is something that we are all born with, that feeling of when we see injustice happening, when we see someone taken advantage of, when we see someone is being treated unfair, it doesn't sit right with us, especially if you claim to be a Christian. You're a Christ follower. You're a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. That that shouldn't sit well with you. And it, and it especially doesn't sit well with us, especially as Americans, when it happens to us, when we're the object of injustice or we're the object of unfair treatment. And it's funny because it's the same thing that makes you and I feel uneasy when we lie to somebody. Even if it's a little white lie or we cheat, even if it's just a game, like we're just playing, it's just fun, but we're like, I want to win real bad. And you find yourself cheating a little bit and it tends to make you kind of feel bad and probably should, right? Because you're, you're breaking the rules. But we all, my point is, we all carry around this sense of right and wrong. We carry around a sense of justice which makes us, as we look at the world that we live in today, there is this pervasive sense that the world is as it, it is not as it ought to be. It is not as it ought to be. That there are groups of people that are treated in ways that they should not be treated. There are things that are happening that should not be happening. We look around and we say, yes, that should not be like that. And that deep down, God-given, as we're going to see, is a God-given sense that he has put on our hearts, and he's stamped on us to identify wrongness that ought to be made into rightness in the world. This is a sense that the Bible calls righteousness, that it should be made right. This ought to be made right. Now, if I could give you a bigger a little more robust definition of right, righteousness. It is a properly ordered relationship between God and his people. So, conversely, violating this relationship, people violating the relationship with God, would lead to unrighteousness. So this is what the Bible calls unrighteousness, where people have said, I hear what you say, God. Nope, I ain't doing it. I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to do what you want to do. And it always leads to unrighteousness, which usually leads to violence and death and persecution and suffering and all kinds of horrible things. And God's saying, listen, 
and I'll rescue you out, and he has over and over. But he's saying, listen, I want you to be rightly related, properly ordered relationship between you and I. But what's interesting is that righteousness actually goes beyond just our vertical relationship with God. It actually goes horizontal. It also can mean be applied to a right relationship between people. It can also imply a right relationship between the government and the governed. It can also mean the right relationship between humans and creation. You remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 that God has called us to manage, to rule over his creation. It is his, his world, and he's asked us to manage it well. And when we mismanage it, that is unrighteousness, he tells us. In other words, I want you to see that righteousness, this is why many times righteousness is also translated as injustice, or justice, rather. Righteousness is also translated justice throughout Scripture. Even this uh, verse 6 of Matthew 5 in the NLT, or the New Living Translation, it would say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. If we look at Acts chapter 17, verse 31, this is a great illustration of this, where the apostle Paul is preaching at the Areopagus, and he's preaching to a whole crowd of people that are not Christians at all. Um, they are pagan, idol-worshiping people, and he is sharing with them the good news of Jesus. And one of the statements he makes in here is he's talking about how at the end of this age, as the human race wraps up, there will be a time where Jesus will return and that God, through Jesus, will judge the world. And here's how it's, it's stated in the NIV. He says, he will judge the world with justice. And then the English Standard Version is he will judge the world in righteousness. This word is so closely related to both of those ideas, it can be used interchangeably. But we see over and over that Jesus here is affirming this sense and this longing that we have for justice, that we have for justice within ourselves. And then he even compares it. He says, our longing for justice, for things to be made right here, is just as relentless as the body's desire for food and water. And God promises that in his kingdom, that this desire that he placed in us for justice in our hearts will ultimately be satisfied. And he says, and you can be confident of that, that you will be filled in his time, in his timetable. Now, when, it, when we start to talk about hungry and thirsting for righteousness, there's, there's a twofold component to this that I think it's important to talk about. There is an um, hunger and thirst both internally and externally for righteousness. An internal desire for righteousness is one for personal holiness. This is a desire to be in right standing with God. Even if you're not even a Christian today, I think there's some part of you that would say, I would love it if I, my life could be rightly positioned before God that there was no hindrance between me being able to interact with God, know his will, and to be able to live for him and him to be able to speak to me and I could speak to him and to have this intimacy like, yeah, I would love that. The God of the universe, are you kidding me? Yes, I would love that. There is a desire in all of us for that. But there's also a desire externally for things that are not right to be made right. 
especially if you have been on the receiving end of something unjust that's happened to you, that something horribly unjust has happened at work or in the community, growing up in your family, where you got hurt and you got hurt real bad. And maybe to this day, the person who hurts you, justice has never been served on them. Or maybe they hurt somebody that you loved or they hurt a people group that you care about. Maybe they hurt your child. I remember an injustice like this happening to me and my brother John, our family, really way back in the mid-90s. My brother had a best friend. His name was Chuck. And Chuck was having dinner um, with some friends in downtown Austin. And one night, he was coming back to his truck. He got jumped by a couple of guys, and they beat him to death. He died. I would be lying if I told you that my brother John and I did not want to avenge his death, find those guys, and give them what they gave. That would have been wrong, obviously. But they were arrested and put in jail for a very long time. But it was something that we had to commit to pray for and just to say, God, help us be able to forgive and to release that. But maybe that's where you are right now. And you're like, well, I've had something like that happen to me in my life. It happened to somebody that I loved. And, and it doesn't matter how long that guy, those guys are in prison, it doesn't bring Chuck back. I don't get to talk to him. I don't get to hang out with him. It doesn't bring the relationship back. And I, I hope someday I'll get to see him in heaven. But it is not going to fix it for right now, right? And maybe you felt this way. This is where you are right now in some area of your life. There is a hungering and a thirsting for justice, for righteousness. So the question we got to ask, where do we bring our injustices or our hunger and thirst for righteousness? Where do we bring that? And Jesus would say, you bring it right over here. You bring it right into the kingdom of God. You bring it to me and I will help to begin to heal your heart, and I will fill you up with my righteousness. And that is not just preacher speak. This is a powerful spiritual reality that many people have experienced, but not near enough. More should. And what I'd like to do right now is to unpack this idea by looking at a parable that Jesus told that spoke specifically to this idea of when you're on the receiving end of injustice, what are you to do? And it's a parable called the persistent widow, okay? Even if you're here today saying, well, Will, this is not going to apply to me. I'm not a widow, okay? It doesn't matter. Jesus was just telling the story. This applies to everybody, even though it was happening in the story, to a widow. But this parable, this is an interesting concept, this idea of parable, the Greek word parable means to lay two things alongside each other and to compare and contrast the two things. And Jesus was constantly doing this in a genius way. He will take something that's common, that's every day, something that was happening in their culture all the time, and he was laying it down next to a truth about God and his kingdom, and he was saying, let me show you what this is like. Because this this, this kingdom of God seems so ethereal and so removed and so other from you that sometimes you may say, well, I could never even begin to understand what God might be up to and what he wants from me. And Jesus said, actually, you can know. It is, it is very knowable. This is information for you to know and to live upon. And this is what he did. 
So we're gonna look at Luke chapter 18, starting with verse one. This parable goes from one to verse eight. We'll start with verse one because Luke gives us a little background on the parable we're about to receive from Jesus. He says this, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should, let's say it together, they should always pray and what? And not give up. When you're faced with unrighteousness, trouble, difficulty, hard times in this life, injustices, those tend to be the two options that people choose. They either pray or they give up. They either pray or they give up. And it's important for us to be mindful that Jesus is saying, I want you to be intentional and disciplined to continue to pray as you go through this. I recently, this week, read a story about during the World War II in London, England, when they were being bombed mercilessly, there was a church in downtown London that put up a sign uh, in front of the church, and it said this, if your knees knock together, kneel on them. I love that. I'm like, that's exactly what he's saying at the beginning of this, this parable. Um, he's saying, listen, always pray and not give up. If you stand there just with the knees knocking, right, scared, and there are a lot of situations in life that are gonna, deep down, we might not admit it, but we're afraid, I'm, we're scared, or we're furious and afraid, <laughs> and we don't really know what to do, and we just stew in that furiousness and that fear instead of praying, and we ought to pray. This is what he's calling us to do. And I love the challenge the Apostle Paul gives in his letter to the church in, in uh, Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, I want to give you a verse from the Bible you can memorize today. You will leave here knowing another verse from the Bible, okay? And here it is. Pray continually. Two words. All right. We're going to say this together, okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Let's say it together. Ready? Pray continually. There. You know another verse out of the Bible. All right. That's wonderful. You leave here today. And of course, Paul is not saying you should go through your whole day like this, Right? That, that, that's not practical. He is saying, however, that from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, be aware that you are always in the presence of God. He will never leave you or forsake you. So when you're getting ready in the morning, talk to him. When you're getting ready to go to a meeting, whether it's a confrontational meeting, an encouraging meeting, talk to him. When you're getting ready for bed at night, talk to him. When you're getting ready to talk to your children, you're getting ready to see your kids, you're going to have to... Get on to him, talk to him. It will remind you that you're not alone. Regardless of how you feel, our emotions will lie to us all day long. You're all alone, you're all in this by yourself. But God is always there. Pray continually. Let it be an open conversation that happens throughout the day. Verse two, this is where he dives into the parable and this is where Jesus begins to teach. He says, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. In other words, it was all about him. He did everything, what was in it for him, what, what can I get out of it? In other words, he was a corrupt politician of the first century, okay? This was Jesus' way of saying that. Like, this guy didn't care anything about people. He was leveraging his power and position for himself. But guess what happens? This is really interesting. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me, let's say it together, grant me justice against my adversary. 
Okay, before we go any further, a lot of commentaries um, kind of agree that, th- that this was a common thing that happened with widows back then, is that her husband's passed away, and now she's sort of easy prey for some other guy to come in and swoop in and take away her land, her real estate, all of her, um, any kind of uh, uh, valuable you know, things that she owned, material items, those could be taken from her pretty easily back then. Unfortunately, there weren't good laws that protected women like her. So she's going to the judge to say, listen, I need some help. This guy is coming after me. So, and, and we're told by Jesus, for some time he refused, he being the judge. He refused her over and over. Just, yeah, you're wasting my time, woman. Get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. You're not doing anything for my career. And then, the next verse, but finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets what? She gets justice. He says this, right? So that she won't eventually come and attack me. This is kind of funny that Jesus includes this in the story. The, the Greek phrase, attack me, literally means to blacken the eye. Blacken the eye. Another translation says that so that she won't come beat me down with her continual coming. So whether the black eye was physically like she's actually going to attack me or she may give me a black eye politically or in the community or something like that. Either way, it motivates him. And I love what Jesus says next. And then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust, unrighteous judge says. Listen, did you hear what he said? I'm going to give her justice anyway because she's been so persistent. Now, in verse seven, he says this, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, his people, his citizens of the kingdom who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? You see, Jesus is doing a parable, a um, lying next to each other and making a contrast here. Uh, It is called a parable of contrast where he compares the lesser to the greater. It's as as if Jesus is saying, if it is true, if this could be true about this low lesser, then how much more true would it be of this greater? It's kind of like in Matthew 7 where he says, those of you parents who are sinful, that sometimes do evil things, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more does your heavenly father know how to bless his kids? How much more? He's using it as a contrast. He says, this judge is nothing like God. And you don't have to keep pestering God over and over, but you do need to remind yourself that he's in charge and he's ultimately gonna bring justice to everything that is unjust. He's gonna bring righteousness to everything that is unrighteous. And I can trust that. And I can rely on that. And this is what Jesus' point is. Don't you think for a minute that God doesn't know. And he wants you to continue to bring it to him. And then verse eight, this is how he wraps it up. He says, I tell you, he, God, will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, this is talking about, he's talking about his second coming now, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the implied answer is yes. And he is encouraging you and I to bring our hungering and our thirsting for justice to him in prayer. To bring it to him. To trust him. 
And don't seek vengeance. Don't try to avenge yourself. In Romans 12, we're told, do not repay evil for evil. To trust the Lord, he says, um, that I will avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, when your enemy is hungry, feed him. When he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So powerful. This is the idea here. Is that God's saying, if you will bring it to me and you will trust me, it might not always happen in your lifetime, but I'm going to take care of it. It might be after you go to heaven, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ but I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to bring about justice. And if you will bring it to me, I don't care how horrible the atrocity you were taken advantage of, you were abused, you were things, unspeakable stuff that was done to you, if you will bring that to your heavenly Father and you will trust it with Him, leave it with Him. He's showing, Jesus is showing us that your in, uh, your, your, the injustice and the unrighteousness that was done to you in light of the greatness of God will start to feel very insignificant. God's got that. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I can release that to him and he will begin to fill you with his righteousness, his presence, his power. It is something that we rarely get to see in this world anymore, but Jesus has said it's available. It is available to all those who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness. And I want you to bring it to me. In other words, if Jesus was serious, then our desire for righteousness and justice should be prayed for and worked towards with peace. We're not being violent about this. We're working towards it with peace. First in ourselves, it starts here first, and then in our world around us. God, I want my, my heart to be right. I want to be rightly ordered before you before I go try to help anybody else. Jesus said it this way. He says, take the log out of your own eye before you go help your neighbor with the speck in theirs, right? That you need to start right here. God, where do I need to confess? Get this right. Where is there unrighteousness lurking within me? And I have, I'm going to ask you to help me with that. I'm going to surrender that. Jesus gave us this beautiful promise when it comes to our troubles and our difficulties and our injustices and unrighteousness. In John chapter 16, verse 33, he said it this way. I have told you these things. I, I've taught these challenging things that you may not want to take seriously, but I've given them to you so that in me you may have, let's say it together, in me you may have peace something that rarely ever happens in a human heart on this planet. True, deep, abiding peace. If we go all the way back to the first word in all eight of these Beatitudes, blessed are those. Blessed. This is a word that means happy. It means deep joy. Deep joy. Deep well-being of the soul that is not attached to your circumstances. How, how wonderful would that be if you could have peace that is not attached to your circumstances. Even if your circumstances are pretty horrible, you could still have peace. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I, I've taught you and I've said these things so you may have peace because in this world you're going to have what? You're going to have 
trouble, right? And doesn't most of our trouble come from injustices, unrighteousness that's happened to us or happened to somebody that we love? And that's where most of the trouble comes from. And he's saying, you, I want you to trust me, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When I came back from the dead, and <laughs> I resurrected, baby, I'm in charge. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. You can trust me. I've got this, and I've got you, and I'll take care of this, but you've got to trust me. And there was a peace that will surpass all human understanding if you will. Now, there may be this deeper longing in your heart over an unjustness in your own heart or an unrighteousness within yourself. And what I mean by that is that you are haunted day and night. I talk to people all the time that feel this way. Haunted day and night over a past failure or sin that happened, something you did, you wish you could take back, you said you wish you could take back, but it came out. And, and now you're living with the, the aftermath. You're living with the consequences of what you did. And there is like every fiber in your being that just hungers and thirsts for that. I wish it could be made right. I wish God could pluck that unrighteousness out of my life and put righteousness down in its place. But guess what? That is exactly why Jesus came. He said, he says, you, you really want that? Do you really want to be made right in right relationship, have the righteousness of God imputed into your life? Here's how it works. When Paul was writing his letter to the Christians in Rome, he said it this way in chapter 3, verse 22. He says, this righteousness that you all long for is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. What a beautiful gift. It is such an incredible thing to say, God, I believe, I trust you, Jesus, that when you died on the cross for the sins of all people, that was for me, and I trust that. And then I ask you to forgive my sin, and I ask you to help me to supplant that unrighteousness of my heart and replace it with the righteousness of Christ, that I will live out of that, out of gratitude for what you've done for me from this day forward doesn't mean you get it right every time or you're perfect. Nobody is going to expect that out of you, but that you're willing to say, I'm putting Jesus first. You seek first me, my kingdom, then all these other things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. Now, I want to ask you today, would you be willing to do that? Because when you receive that kind of forgiveness, supernatural forgiveness from God that you don't deserve, it allows you, it, it makes you capable of extending supernatural forgiveness to other people that they don't deserve either. And this hardly ever happens anymore, but it ought to happen more. That people say, I have been filled by the righteousness of God and I'm able to extend forgiveness and grace and mercy to others that they don't deserve either. And today, maybe that's where you are spiritually. And I want to ask you to pray this application prayer with me, simply saying, Jesus, I hunger and thirst for your righteousness first within myself and then in this area of my life. And would you just get honest with God and say, my marriage, in my workplace, with my kids or my parents or somebody else that has really hurt you, 
And it's time that you bring that to God and say, God, I can't, in my own power, make this right, but I hunger and thirst to see it made right. I'm inviting you, maybe for the very first time in your life, into a situation that has been a constant, ongoing, burning hurt in your heart. Would you be willing to give that to him today, right now? If you would, let's bow together in prayer and ask God to meet us right here, right now. And in this prayer, I want you to think about first internally and then externally. Where is your heart longing and hungering and thirsting for the righteousness and justice of God? Lord, we come before you right now. We thank you so much for your incredible promise to us that if we'll come to you, we will be blessed. We will be happy. We will have deep joy that does not have to come from our circumstances, that is independent of circumstances. I pray, God, all across this room right now for every person that would honestly have to say, Lord, here is the area of my life where I feel it has been unjust. I feel like my parents have not been fair. I feel like my employers have not been fair. I feel like my community leaders have not been fair. My government has not been fair. I feel like whoever, you just fill in the blank. I don't feel like it's been fair. God, help me to trust you with the outcome here. Would you just tell him right now? All across this room, if you know that God is revealing to you, here is the area that I want you to surrender to me today, and you would be willing to do that, I want to pray for you right now. Would you just lift your hand? God is clearly showing me an area of my life I need to surrender to him. Thank you for the hands going up here on the floor, up in the balcony, anybody up there? God, I pray right now that you would just help us to surrender to you the areas of our life that have been heartbreaking, unfair, unrighteous. We ask, God, that you would intervene. We come to you like this persistent widow today to pray and not give up. God, please, would you speak into this situation? Would you give us your peace in the meantime that you would help us to trust you at a level that we never have before? That you've got this. And that we don't have to oversee it or superintend what you're going to do. God, you're God and we are not. And your ways are higher, your thoughts are higher than ours ever will be. And we should trust that, God. And I pray that today would be the beginning baby steps for some that are listening to this message today. I'm going to start trusting God like never before. And I'm going to start trusting it with this area that has been a constant burden on my heart. Would you give it to him today? Give it to him right now. You may lower your hands. And God, I pray for every person who can hear my voice this morning that may not be a Christian yet, that you, you would say, I don't know where I stand. I don't feel like I am rightly aligned with God. My relationship is not rightly organized before God correctly. Would you just right now just cry out to him and say, God, I want to receive your righteousness in the place of my unrighteousness. I ask that you would forgive my sin. And I'm trusting right now that when you died on the cross and you resurrected from the dead to, to cover the penalty of sin, that was for me. And I'm trusting right now. I place my faith and my belief in you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin. Would you tell him that right now? I'm trusting you for the forgiveness of sin. 
that you would place righteousness in my heart right here. That can happen right here, right now, this very moment. Don't put it off another day. Would you ask him? And would you commit to him from this day forward, I will follow you. I will let you and your righteousness guide my life. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time, asking him to forgive your sin and asking him to be the Lord of your life, that you're letting his righteousness guide your life, would you just raise your hand and say, Will, that's me. I'm trusting God for the very first time with everything I've got. Anybody here trusting God for the first time, trusting him for salvation? God bless you right back there. I see you. Anybody else? Praise God for, God bless you, ma'am, right there. I see you. Praise God for you. Father, we just praise you. We, Jesus, I'm overcome by the moment. You tell us that the, the angels of heaven explode into applause over even just one lost sinner who's turned back to you. God, there's a party in heaven today, and we praise you for that. We thank you for that. That your righteousness is getting to reign just a little bit more on this planet through us and that our lives can be a beacon of hope and light to others around us. And I pray we would live that way for your glory. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. God bless you guys. Next week, we're going to talk about the number one thing people do to sabotage the relationship with God. Don't miss that. We'll see you then. Have a great week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.